Straw Hut Media. In the queer community, it's common for individuals to conceal their true identities because of societal influences and expectations. In Dr. Daniel Fow's case, who uses they-them pronouns, it went a step further. They grew up in a conservative bubble, so when they tried to open up about their sexual orientation, their counselor sent them to conversion therapy. But Dr. Fow knew there was more out there than what their counselor was telling them. They wanted real answers, so... They turned to science and began looking for the answers themselves. Dr. Fow is a queer and genderqueer neuroscientist specializing in sex differences and endocrinology. And if you don't know what any of that means, don't worry, we're going to get into it. Today, Dr. Fow is here to explain their discoveries about the history of queerness and what place the LGBTQ community has in the world of science. I'm Dr. Daniel Fow, and this is Pride. Dr. Fow grew up in sunny California, and from a young age, they were drawn to nature. I just love being in nature and love watching just the animals and even just the plants blowing in the wind. But they were interested in more than just the beauty of it. They wanted to know why it was here and what it came from. How everything sort of grew and how everything sort of like just looked and the way that it grew. And for me, that uh, sort of translated really well into science and school. Dr. Fow began to realize that the community and the education system they were in was only going to cover the basics. I had a very small sort of community of conservative individuals. So the things that drew me to science weren't necessarily things or topics that they were interested in talking about. So they started looking for the answers themselves. So when I was growing up, I would see in the natural world these things, these aspects of the natural world that didn't fit into like what I was being told. So like when I was uh, being told like, you know, there's men and women and then I'd collect all these beetles and these beetles would all like stack up on each other and obviously be doing something that someone told me would only happen between a man and a woman. And I'm like, okay, well, five of these beetles now are on top of each other. Something else has to be going on. But because Dr. Fowl was young and therefore viewed as naive, they were constantly battling it with know-it-all adults. All the adults basically telling me that, like, you don't know what you're talking about. Let us share with you what's the truth. And then me looking out in nature being like, okay, but wait a second, these two things aren't really sort of jiving together. While on a school field trip, Dr. Fow's fascination with sex and identity intensified. We were looking at animals, and a, it was in the fifth grade, I think, and we had a biologist with us who was telling us about sex differences between males and females, but then sort of talking about how in some species they don't exist. And I just like latched onto that idea and just was going all wonky and talking about it a bunch, and people were just entertained by it. And like to no end. And so I just like, oh my goodness, okay, let me just keep talking about male and female and male and And people were um, giving me weird looks. And my dad was on the trip with us and he was just mortified. I don't think he really knew exactly what was going on. 
Dr. Fow received pushback because of their passion for gender identity. No one in their community understood why they cared so much. But like I said, I, I think a lot of individuals felt like I was sort of both connected to like some weird sexual thing as well as, you know, my gender identity at the time not being like not being comfortable identifying male or at least expressing uh, gender identity and gender expressions that are typical of the males that were there. Uh, people would say things to me like, oh, you can't do that. That's sexual. Some of the habits Dr. Fow picked up on were seen as atypical by their peers, which only left them more confused. I couldn't twirl my sweatshirt that I'm wearing around my waist like it's a tutu. What's going on? Why? They were part of a very conservative church group, which meant the queer community didn't even exist in their eyes. Anyone who was queer or trans would eventually realize that that was wrong and, you know, rejoin society, basically. And so little Daniel uh, sort of grew up feeling like they had no, there was nothing like them. There was no outside example that they could sort of take in and say, like, this is how I feel. This is how I would like to express myself. This is how I feel authentic and safe. But their research pointed to the conclusion that there was more to gender and identity than just male or female. And so it was just like these mixed messages and feeling, honestly, like I had discovered a whole new world that no one wanted to talk about. But Dr. Fow didn't give up. Biology is only as limited as the scientists who are creating it, in a sense. And so for me, like as little tiny biologist Daniel, I was like, oh my goodness, everyone's wrong. <laughs> why, why is no one watching these Beatles like I am and realizing this? <laughs> when your biologist is like, you know, there's these some species that don't have, you know, male and female, and there's more of a spectrum. And you're like, I know what, I know one, it's humans. Did you know that? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, it's so true. That's a species. Yes, I, exactly. And it's so weird because people will talk about it all the time, like, oh, yeah, we're only talking about animals. And I'm like, um, okay, <laughs> am I not an animal? <laughs> Luckily, when they went off to college, the professors there were more willing to help them find the answers they were searching for. And it had a lot to do with reproductive endocrinology, which is one of my most favorite things to talk about, which is basically just looking how. Our hormones influence our ability to sort of uh, create these different aspects of our identity related to sex. So we have, and, and our physiology related to sex. They had found their passion, but Dr. Fow still worried others wouldn't take their work seriously because of how they identified. Oh, but wait, no one's going to believe anything I talk about because I'm this queer individual and eventually would come out as genderqueer. And I felt like I just simply, um, would be laughed at, and honestly, that, that does happen from time to time. But they had had enough pushback for a lifetime and decided to look past that fear and just do it anyway. My love for understanding these systems took over, and I was just like, no, I'm done caring about that. And so I'm sort of at this point in my life where I'm just like this neuroendocrinologist who sort of wants to do as much as I can to help the queer community to... Um, not not even be um, shown to be supported through science, but to have science be there for them, have science address their needs, and, and to truly give them power in science as well. 
we're not expecting everyone to just know what an endocrinologist is. So let's break it down. Endocrinology is basically the study of hormones. And neuroendocrinology is sort of looking at how hormones and the nervous system interact. And I think it's fascinating because one of the things, uh, these are really our two communication systems for the body. One of them being hormones, which are a chemical signal, and then the neurons and uh, nervous system, which is all electrical signals. And we translate those signals between each other. So electrical signals become chemical signals, not only at the level of hormones, but you know, even between cells. Um, if neurons are communicating with each other, it means they're transitioning an electrical signal into a chemical one in between themselves and the other neuron. And then that other neuron is, is able to take that information and make it into an electrical signal again. And so throughout the body, this is happening in like small scale and large scale all over the place. And I, I just find it fascinating how much communication is going on and just that diversity. And it was this diversity that led Dr. Fao to look outside of societal walls for their own identity. Seeing how things can be so diverse, because I mean, when you've got two systems that are communicating in all different kinds of ways, <laughs> you get just all this diversity going on too. When we come back, how the disappearance of a gene could explain the history of queer behavior. Welcome back. Today, we're talking with Dr. Daniel Fow, a queer neuroendocrinologist who first questioned the idea of gender and identity by observing the sexual behavior of beetles. Before the break, Dr. Fow explained how their own findings were inconsistent with what some researchers and studies were trying to tell them. Like I said, that there was these aspects of biology that just didn't make sense. They didn't quite get to an experience that could explain them in my, in my thinking, basically. And I think one of the um, really good papers that I came across early that sort of showed me this was a friend of mine who had published a paper um, and uh, they are uh, sort of a, um, they work mostly in psychology. And so they had um, really delved into this idea of whether or not expressing something like same-sex sexual behavior would actually lead to a decrease in the amount of reproduction that's going on. So basically like, okay, this animal all of a sudden is expressing same-sex sexual behavior, does that mean it's no longer expressing different sex sexual behaviors and that it, can, that it can no longer reproduce? The paper they are referencing is called Oversimplifying Evolutionary Psychology Leads to Explanatory Gaps by Dr. J. Better Garcia and Dr. Charlotte Tate. When I first came across it, this sort of idea that, you know, they had presented uh, that we were thinking about things a certain way, but we don't always have to think about them that way. I'm sort of stuck with me. Yeah, there are people out there who's seeing this unique world that I saw and saying to themselves like, okay, wait a second, let's step back and let's make sure we're actually looking at the complexity and holding all that complexity. Dr. Fao's next Eureka moment came while taking a college course, but instead of the beetles they were looking at before, this time, it was mice. This um, 
mouse model where they removed a specific gene and the mice started to show same-sex sexual behavior. So the male mice would actually mount uh, males and the female mice, which typically don't show mounting behavior, did start mounting and they would mount both males and females. And so, and they'd also obviously show the uh, sexual behaviors that would lead to reproduction as well. The gene they removed from the mice was called TRPC2. And then when the the next bit of information I've got, for some reason for me, like made so much sense, but for many people just didn't. And it was that humans lost this gene, the TRPC2 gene a long time ago during our evolution, about 25 billion years ago. Humans weren't exactly around 25 billion years ago. But Dr. Fow says it may have been a small mammal that humans evolved from. The idea basically being that it's some ancient creature, not at all like humans. And in this organism, there was um, this gene. And when it was lost, it was uh, at that point that the creature would be able to express the same-sex sexual behavior. And that's what makes sense in my mind. Like, okay, take it away from a mouse, they express same-sex sexual behavior take it away from a human ancestor, there they go. They're they're expressing same-sex sexual behavior. But when I often, when I tell people this, they'd be like, oh, well, we don't have the TRPC2 gene, so it doesn't apply to us. I'm like, yeah, no, I said that. It applies to our ancestor. (laughs) And so there was this, like, even at the get-go of this, I could see there was this sort of disconnect between wanting to talk about, like, something that sort of influenced us, but sort of started way before this sort of concept of queer community and really just sort of having to separate those two ideas was something that I can see now um, was sort of one of the driving issues of why people sort of had a difficulty understanding sort of what I was saying when I got to a certain point. And, And so What I was hoping to do with this paper was to really, like, as you say, there's just tons of biological information. And so what I was really hoping to do was sort of just spew it all out there and be like, hey, this is directly the each step I took to sort of try and get to this point of saying that, you know, it's a complicated story. But why does the absence of the gene cause the animals to show same-sex behaviors? So if we were to assume that mice and our ancestral primates were the same, Uh, they would both be expressing aggression towards males because of the scent and showing um, sexual behavior towards females because of their scent. The loss of this gene disrupts the ability of that olfactory system. And no longer are they able to just say, okay, I automatically am going to do this based on this signal. And that doesn't mean that they can't detect whether or not it's a male or female. But what it means is that there was a system that sort of put this in stone. It was sort of... Um, a behavioral paradigm that was set up because of its presence, because of the presence of the pheromone, because of the presence of the behavior, and because of the presence of this gene. And all those things had to happen together for this sort of complicated behavioral paradigm, which was aggress towards males and have sex with females for a male. And then obviously for females, you end up with um, a little bit more complicated because they'll aggress towards a male that is not their mate. (laughs) And then they'll Um, also be able to show sexual receptivity uh, to a male. But this idea led to some complications. Some people began to wonder if the loss of the gene could have led to the creation of a gay ancestor and a straight ancestor. That really can't be done because we're losing a gene for one, which means everything that's after 
is the same for everyone. So there's no way that this created, you know, two separate um, uh, species that are even um, alleles because it's the loss of a gene. Every gene that makes up our bodies has two copies, one from each parent. These are called alleles, and they ultimately make up our phenotypes or our outward appearances. Your mom has blue eyes and your dad has brown. Those alleles caused you to have the phenotype for brown eyes. But what can also lead to diversity in humans are selection pressures or outside influences. How selection pressures interact with each of those aspects uh, can lead to a diversity of changes. And so without having the ability to interact with sort of diverse sexual partners, um, we wouldn't be able to see all these sort of diverse identities today because in order for new alleles to develop that would allow for the expression of those sort of phenotypes, those identities, those experiences, um, there has to be some sort of allele that appeared, which is a gene difference. And for that gene difference to appear, we need to have like something acting on it. And if you don't have any other diversity in sexual partner except for, you know, different sex organisms, then those types of alleles just wouldn't appear. And especially um, when we're talking about um, sort of the evolution of queer identities, um, this has to have taken place way after that because, you know, within queer identities, we have all these, this multitude of uh, experiences, whether it be um, on levels of romantic attraction to sexual attraction uh, to desires of multiple partners or um, a de desire for monogamy. So all these differences sort of have to have come from some diversity in our um, genetics being acted upon by these uh, various selection pressures. And, and so to me, it just made sense that there had to have been something really happening a really long time ago for so much diversity to appear now. So how does this all relate back to humans? There's a really big study done recently looking at genetics between individuals. It was looking at two sexes, so men and women, and then it was looking at three different orientations. So they were looking at bisexuals, heterosexuals, and homosexuals. The research shows that some alleles were showing up more frequently in certain communities. For example, like in homosexual men, there might be an allele that shows up at much higher levels than in the other groups. And so one um, sort of one idea that comes from this is like, how could these um, alleles have appeared without the selection pressures that could lead to their development? And so that's sort of the idea of my paper that we need to accept a sufficiently nuanced um, explanation of our behavior as far back as, you know, this ancestor in order to truly understand and, and hold the complexity of actual human experiences. One of the biggest takeaways from Dr. Fow's research is to keep an open mind when it comes to the human species. There really are no simple explanations for everything. People sort of want, when they're hearing a biologist talk, to be like, oh yeah, it's this percentage genetics and this percentage like environment and nature and nurture. And, and to me, it's sort of immaterial to humans because of how long our development extends. We truly have 
so many aspects of nature and nurture interacting. I like to think of it sort of like as this Plinko board where you sort of drop a disc at the top and it can go down and will sort of go out and like I was explaining there's phenotypes and so in science we often like limit things and say like male and female so we drop our Plinko thing and we study each of the steps that eventually will lead you to male or female and that is truly a model and I always love to say that you know um all models are useful, but they're wrong. And so it's a useful idea of male and female, but it's ultimately wrong. And so I think a lot of scientists are finally really opening up to the idea that rather than sort of saying, you know, we have male and female, or we have more than male and female, but to rather say like, you know, sex is complicated. It's not, it's not any one thing. And to move away from uh, that positionality, I think, is really scary for scientists. Dr. Fowle's relationship with the studies has been rocky. It was difficult to trust science when all the research that was presented to them went directly against everything they were feeling. I really did not know or believe that a queer community existed beyond sort of this community of individuals working through their sin and, you know, eventually coming out on the other end. Um, and so that was sort of one of the reasons why I felt difficult or a difficult connection with the scientific community was that when through this process, I was shown like the scientific research that supported the notion that you could actually uh, change your uh, sexual orientation. And, and this was sort of stuff presented uh, at, you know, a, a scientific conference. And so at the time, and this is back in like 2000, uh, early 2000s. And so at the time, I had no ability to push back against that, aside from, you know, my little Beatles and my garage that sort of confused me. <laughs> and so the only way I had to push back against it was sort of wanting wanting the things that I did desire and, and feeling like, you know, like, how could this be wrong if this is what I'm feeling? And so, but I mean, it took forever to get to that point. Dr. Fow came out to a Christian counselor when they were 14. The counselor advised them to go to conversion therapy, where they would supposedly push the gay away. It was really all about this idea that any same-sex attraction that I had was only related to sort of the sexual aspect and that, you know, any aspect that I thought was going to be something I wanted from a same-sex relationship um, could also be gotten from these, um, from basically being a heterosexual. And the idea, I think, that really drove that and allows that for individuals to sort of claim is that they feel all these systems for our relationships were developed with the idea of heterosexual heterosexuality in mind. So when you think about it as a scientist, it's a rather crazy concept to basically be like, you know, evolution, it's there to support heterosexuality. Of course, why would it do anything else? But when you really think of it as a biologist, like that just doesn't make sense. It was just holding the complexity of evolution and, and not letting ourselves be struck by, you know, sort of the simplicity of just saying, oh yeah, heterosexuality leads to babies. The most like 
it's just such a um, easy thing then for a scientist to say then, oh yeah, well, if heterosexuality is how we get babies, then that's all that our evolution would be selecting for. But I mean, obviously that's not true. There's tons of queer individuals that have children. Um, on top of that, like, if that were the case, then why are queer individuals able to pr- reproduce at all? And I mean, these are sort of some of the questions that sort of push back at that idea. But I think the thing that really pushes back the most is this idea that these systems evolved independently of like these directed sexual behaviors. We didn't evolve um, a sexual drive that's a heterosexual drive and a homosexual drive. We have sex drives. Um, we didn't we didn't um, develop these separate um, sort of aspects of relationships. Dr. Fow hopes that going forward, science can focus more on input from communities. They want to make sure that the queer community has a say and feels represented by science rather than alienated. Oh my goodness, everyone in the queer community, tell me what you think sex is. And I'm like, yay, let's add that in. <laughs> and for them, it's like, Ooh, that's too much, too fast. And, you know, it's um, something that I think is happening more and more. Um, But there's also, I think, sort of going to have to be this reckoning in science where we start to value the experiences of the individuals we're discussing in terms of how we develop our theories. And I don't mean just sort of asking what they think, but making sure that they have a chance to look at what we're creating and say like, oh yeah, I see myself in that, or no, I don't see myself in that, and so you need to change that. and. And I think also just learning how to hold that complexity too, learning how to be able to say to one individual, like, okay, yeah, they conceptualize it this way. And you say, that's not at all how you conceptualize that. How can we hold both those as truthful within its, within biology? And I truly believe that is, is the way for the, um, for really the queer community to be empowered by science. I honestly do feel like for some individuals, it's very helpful to sort of be able to look at science and say, hey, like, I understood in the past that my identity was this way, or, or I understood it, um, or I had difficulties accepting my identity because of X, Y, and Z. And then they maybe look in the science and be able to say, okay, well, there's sort of this idea out there that sort of helps me personally. But even science has its limits, especially when it comes to explaining the origins of gender identities. And part of it is because it's not something science is capable of doing, in a sense. So we have like all these studies about brain scans and things like that. But really, we don't exactly know what's going on in those. Oftentimes, they're interpreted in very succinct ways. But it's a lot more hand-wavy, I think, than people realize. Dr. Fow says the research going forward should stop questioning what the queer community is. And instead move to like okay, we are what we are. Let's examine this amazing diversity and understand that. And a step further is looking into studies and research that can directly benefit LGBTQ plus individuals, like improving hormone replacement therapy for the trans and non-conforming communities. So individuals, for example, who um, have Parkinson's, they have tons of mouse models to study how we can better serve them through healthcare, through medicine, 
But when we're talking about like the queer community, there are so few examples of this. And um, one of the uh, researchers that I'm really looking forward to um, working for, or working with uh, in the future is uh, at University of Michigan, um, Hadrian Kinnear. And he's looking at, uh, specifically, he has two papers out that are just looking at mice and treating them um, with uh hormone replacement therapy so trying to mimic that which is given to humans in a rodent model and and just sort of making this mouse model of uh, hormone replacement therapy and you know those are the types of things that really are going to lead to um, the queer community benefiting from science but I also in a sense feel like that's an actual way in which scientists can accept our identities without having to you know say they do it through research by, you know, accepting the fact that we have unique needs that should be addressed in research. It's basically saying like our needs and our identities are being affirmed and validated. It's our lived experiences that need to be improved. And so there's just been, I think, this really great push lately to really question what science is being done and, and for the queer community. Dr. Fow is currently finalizing an article to describe their findings alongside their co-author and PhD advisor, Dr. Cynthia Jordan, and Dr. Mark Breedlove. To connect with Dr. Fow, you can follow their Twitter at endoqueer, spelled K-W-E-E-R, that's E-N-D-O-K-W-E-E-R, and find their blog, Queering Science, on Psychology Today at the link in their Twitter bio. Thanks for listening. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends. Subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. Yes, it is that easy. It's at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Levi Chambers, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Written by Caitlin McDaniel. Edited by Sebastian Alcala and Daniel Ferreira. Sound mixing by Sebastian Alcala. That's why you were really, really into, I've already forgotten it with my goldfish brain, um, neural endocrine. No. Oh, you neural endocrinology. <laughs> yes, that's why. That's because exactly. you're like, I'm not watching the Brady Bunch. I'm not watching TV. I'm <laughs> studying. Okay, continue. <laughs>